You're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. Hey there, everyone. Welcome into another episode of the Bible Nerd Podcast. In this week's episode, we're going to be going through the next uh, piece of our series in Dr. Kurt Wise's book, Faith, Form, and Time. And specifically, we're going to cover the compelling evidence for an eternal creator. The compelling evidence for an eternal creator. Now, there are a couple different ways that you could frame a discussion like this. And depending on your views on creation and other things, you know, you will take a little bit different tack on this. But I really like the way that Dr. Wise approaches this particular issue. And so that's how we're going to move forward through this. So just to kind of whet our appetite here and kind of get things started, really a lot of this uh, piece of the book, this chapter of the book, and, and this little section that we're going to be discussing hones in on the second law of thermodynamics, okay? It is one of the settled facts of science, the first and second laws, and also the third law. And it's very helpful that we have objective things that we can look at in the scientific realm because most you know, most of the time with science, it's more about proving things uh, incorrect or wrong than about proving things true. But every now and then you come across something that seems to enjoy um, virtual certainty. And it seems to be that way with the laws of thermodynamics. Dr. Wise sets it up like this, quote, if our experience is correct, complexity increases in systems only with an external energy source, a proper energy conversion mechanism and a design. In light of the second law of thermodynamics, the universe at its origin must have had a lot of usable energy, a lot more than it has now. Close quote. Right? So we're we're gonna tackle this from a very scientific standpoint, looking at the issue of energy and energy uh, conversion and the actual beginning point of the universe. Now there are definitely a few ways over the centuries that um, folks have argued for God as being the first cause or designer of the universe. Just to name some of those out, you've got um, what Tom, Thomas Aquinas called basically the first mover or, or the prime uh, mover sort of argument. You've got uh, certainly one that's very popular these days um, called the Kalam cosmological argument. This is one that um, built on the work of, of others. Uh, Dr. William Lane Craig has popularized and uh, over the past few decades. And it is very well known, very well accepted, and very uh, simple. It's a very simple argument and gets to the, to the core of the issue. There are philosophical proofs and scientific proofs that are um, used in order to sort of show the validity of the argument. And then there's also contingency arguments, okay? So arguments from contingency. And, and what these basically say is that because uh, the universe is not necessary, that means it is contingent. And that which is contingent often depends upon that which is necessary. Okay, I'm grossly simplifying here, but that's basically how that goes. And then you also have a lot of people who want to use teleological arguments. Okay, so teleology is design. And so some people like to use arguments from the design in nature and, and even in the universe and, and getting into some of the specific numbers that are just uh, dialed in ever so carefully, et cetera. Okay, now the problem is all of the arguments that we mentioned um, are great. However, 
some of them, or at least some of the arguments that are used to help support premises in, in the case of these arguments, rely on an old age for creation. They're usually made in that context, and so people may not realize that. So, for example, the Kalam cosmological argument, okay? Again, fantastic argument. One of the scientific proofs that is, um, you know, leveraged to support the philosophical claim that the Kalam cosmological argument makes is, in fact, the uh, first and second laws of thermodynamics. But the other one that's often used is the is an argument for the Big Bang. And of course, as a creationist, we want to say, well, you know, there was no Big Bang, at least as a young age creationist. And, and at least as when we say a Big Bang, if we're talking about the, the thing that, you know, mainstream scientists consider to be this event that caused the universe 13.8 billion years ago, you know, we don't believe that. So the question then becomes, what do we do with that information? Can we even still use some of these uh, arguments? Another one that people don't realize is uh is the um the teleological arguments from in terms of like the um the weak the the weak uh, nuclear force and the strong nuclear force um you know gravity and things like that okay the problem is um in order for us to use those arguments in support of our uh in, in support of creation in, in support of design some of those depend upon the assumptions of uniformitarianism, which is something that, again, as a young age creationist, um, we reject. At the very least, on a young age creationist view, we we can't have as much confidence in those sorts of initial conditions um, as somebody who takes an older age view uh, can, okay? And so I guess what I'm trying to say there is, is those numbers or whatever are not that way of necessity on on our view, but they sort of are on an old age view. I hope I'm being you know uh, not terribly confusing here, um, but but that's the reality of the situation. Okay, is that it's harder for us to use teleological arguments because uh, there wasn't any guaranteed consistency to the to, to the nature of, of of the function of the world until after the flood. And especially if what if what some creation scientists think the implications of the flood were or the necessities, for example, Dr. Kurt Wise, who who even wrote this book, is fairly convinced that the laws of physics could have operated differently either prior to the flood um, and during the flood year in total, or or maybe they they operated differently just during that flood year as a result of God's judgment on the universe. All of those things are possible. But if those things are uh, possible, then that gives us uh, some potential issues with using some of these arguments. And so in, in the book here, Wise takes a very refreshing and I think practical approach to these issues. Um, one that remains consistent with young age creationism. So through examining the physical world, we can arrive at a practical knowledge of even God's attributes. And that's the sort of thing that we go through here. So as I mentioned, Dr. Wise begins talking through the second law, what the second law of thermodynamics essentially uh, gets us, okay? So over the years, creationists unfortunately have used, uh, and uh, uh, well, they've fortunately used, but also unfortunately misused the second law of thermodynamics. If you don't know what that is, Dr. Wise states it very clearly. According to the first law of thermodynamics, the total amount of matter and energy in the universe remains constant. But according to the second law of thermodynamics, the amount of available energy decreases through time. 
Okay. So, um, you know, the, another way of stating these, the first law is that, is that, you know, matter and energy, energy can neither be created or destroyed. And then, um, with the, the second law, we call this also the law of, of entropy. Okay. There's de decreasing states of, of order or increasing states of disorder over time. And the amount of available energy in a given system also decreases through time. And so that is the reality of of the of the physical world. Those are two of the most fundamental realities of the physical world that we deal with. Now, some um, well-meaning creationists of days uh, gone by really tried to um, relegate the second law of thermodynamics to something that was not around until after the fall of man, because it is, you know, you think about it in terms of well. You know, it's this it's this increasing state of disorder. Why think that that was there prior to the fall? Uh, others have come along and sort of argued that, yeah, that, that's not really practical because even things like walking and, and, and breathing, I mean, these are all things that, believe it or not, are possible because of the second law of thermodynamics. So at the very least, we'd want to say that even prior to the fall, some form of this law was operating, if not entirely the law as we uh, sort of understand it today. Uh, but that certainly... Um, could have been the effects of that could have been amplified um, after after the flood, or rather after the uh, the fall of man. So those are some things that are possible. Some other things as it relates to the uh, getting to the universe and getting to the issues of design. Evidence which indicates the universe is expanding also suggests that at some point in the distant past it did have a beginning. Okay, there was a beginning to this universe. In fact, that's exactly why. Um, when the uh, Big Bang was first introduced, mainstream scientists did not like it because to them it sounded a whole lot like what we what we hear about in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, that doesn't mean that we should believe the Big Bang. Again, I don't think it happened. But it is a, a factor, right, uh, that, that scientists were initially not receptive to it for that very reason. The beginning of the universe, if it had a beginning— was then an event, okay? It was an event in time, a moment in time that happened. And in our experience, only some sort of external cause could be responsible for bringing about an event. And as we move forward here, we're going to see actually, you know, a personal cause seems to be what is at play. So as we move into this, Wise uh, starts to go into the issue of, of energy transfer. Usable energy is lost when a transfer of energy actually occurs. So since the creation of the universe was a transfer of energy, and the universe has a finite amount of energy, then whatever caused the universe had more energy than the total amount available in the universe. So what does that mean? Well, that means it has all power. Okay. It also had the ability to actually convert that, okay, whatever it was, to convert that energy that was there into something usable. So it has control over all the energy in the universe as well. Okay. Now, not only energy, but there's also information lost in every transfer of information. I'm going to read wise to you here. Quote, in our experience, information is lost in every transfer of information. This means that the amount of information in the source is always greater than the amount of information transferred. Applied to the origin of the universe, the information possessed by the cause of the universe must have been greater than the total amount of information placed into the universe. This would suggest that the cause of the universe had more information than is found in the universe, meaning that it had all knowledge. Close quote. So here, 
just from looking at the second law of thermodynamics and nothing more, we see that whatever caused this universe to come into being had to have all power and also had to have all knowledge. Pretty powerful, pretty crazy stuff. Now, he, he moves into chaos theory. And in fact, he references one of my absolute favorite movies of all time, which is Jurassic Park. And he talks about where Dr. Ian Malcolm was e explaining um, chaos theory. And he, he illustrated it with a, a drip of water um, going down his hand. It was, you know, being that it was basically totally impossible to predict which way that drip of water would go based on so many different available factors. All right. And so chaos theory provides a really interesting sort of uh, case study here. Um, and it shows that the designer also had to have all knowledge because he would not only need to fundamentally like uh, understand each and every detail of the chaotic system, you know, the different things that sort of go into, um, in, into how things will react based on, you know, the different factors that go into it, but also they must be able to set things up from the beginning in precisely the right way to guarantee future outcomes, okay? So if God has all knowledge, foreknowledge, et cetera, and he intends for an outcome to happen a certain way, then God is going to need to know all the intimate details of that situation in order to actually be able to bring the situation about. And that has, of course, a lot to do with the natural world and how the natural world operates and responds in accordance with itself and with what God wants it to do. So that's how the second law and chaos theory sort of give us some insight into who the designer is. Now, I want to give you a couple more quotes here before we close out for this week's episode, um, just simply about describing the designer. We could go further, um, even than the second law, uh, to to understand what the creator must have been like. And again, I'm just going to, before I, I sort of give these to you, because these are a couple longer quotes, um, I, I just, again, want to express my appreciation and I think we should just marvel really at the fact that we can we can get descriptions of things from the scientific world, from just looking at the physical world and thinking about it logically and carefully. We can actually arrive at basically the very nature of God, okay? Now to me, and I'm just being honest, to me this is a lot more powerful than even just holding to some vague notion of God based on philosophical argumentation. It's It's amazing to me that we can actually go further than that and gain this information and this knowledge by studying the physical world. So here's Dr. Wise. He says, quote, as currently defined, the universe contains all matter, space, and time. The beginning of the physical universe is the beginning of matter, material, space, and physical time. The cause of the universe, then, must have caused the beginning of all matter, material, space, and physical time. This means that the cause of the universe was independent of these three things. Since it was independent of matter, the cause of the universe seems to have been non-physical. Since it was independent of space, the cause of the universe seems to be both outside the universe and at every place within the universe, transcendent, imminent, all-present. Since it was independent of physical time, the cause of the universe seems to be unchanging, always present, and eternal. Do you see the logic? It just flows right from one to the next. Okay, I'm going to keep quoting him here. Since the origin of the universe involved both the beginning of time and matter, the cause of the universe could not have preceded the event in physical time, nor could it have had physical contact with the event to cause it. Our experience suggests then that the cause of the universe was a personal cause, not a physical cause. This suggests that the cause of the beginning of the universe was a personal being with a will. By the way, this is an argument I'm going to break in here. You know, this is not just some crackpot creationist saying this stuff. 
Dr. William Lane Craig came to the same conclusion based on an observation of Dr. Richard Swinburne's. Okay, and both of these being philosophical powerhouses. So Wise is working on great grounds here. Continuing, taking all the evidence from this chapter into account, it seems that the universe is the result of a conscious decision of a permanent, excuse me, of a of a personal, imminent, transcendent, immaterial, changeless, eternal, omniscient omnipotent communicating being who had man in mind in the process being a personal being transcendent to the universe this inference is contrary to both atheism and transcendentalism being imminent this inference is contrary to deism most importantly this inference is uniquely consistent with the god of scripture and as expected from scripture the structure of the universe was designed in such a way that it provides compelling evidence of god and his nature, close quote. My friends, that's what I wanted to bring you today. Compelling evidence for an eternal creator. Do you see how, if you just sort of memorized this, okay, when people say, wow, how can you believe in God? Like, you can actually read through this or, or think through this. You know, again, get the book if you want to or listen to this podcast a few more times and, and take some notes. You could actually put this pretty succinctly to somebody who said, you know, you know who, who questioned you on this. Well, how could you possibly believe that God created the universe? Well, all you have to do is tell them what we know about the way that the universe is, about what we know scientifically about the transfer of energy, the transfer of information, you know, what we know about the second law of thermodynamics, what we know about chaos theory. If you can explain these things in a simple enough way for somebody who challenges you on these things, then you're golden, man. I mean, this is really great stuff. We are on extremely good grounds. An extremely solid scientific, um, you know, of a foundation to be able to say, oh, yeah, there was a God. He created this thing. He was the cause. He was the first mover, right? And uh, everything else is a result of what he did. And, and again, did you see how masterfully that description refutes deism, transcendentalism, all these other false notions of God? What we know about the physical world is consistent with the God of Scripture. And that, my friends, is completely amazing. Well, I hope you got something and, and learned something valuable from this episode. I'm really trying not to, you know, spend too much time here. Um, I know you guys are busy and, you know, 15, 20 minutes of, of, of dense information like this is probably about all most people can handle. So really trying to uh, condense that down a little bit and be something that is more digestible uh, for you and, and help to uh, really bring some understanding from these things. So I can't wait to, to dive into the next episode. Um, I don't uh, have the title right in front of me here of what it is, but I'm sure it's going to be exciting just like this one. And I hope you can use this practically in your conversations with people about the Lord. I love you. God bless you. Thank you for being a listener. Tell somebody about the podcast. Three more people, okay? Find three people this week that you can tell about the podcast, and that would be a great help to the show, okay? God bless. We'll see you in the next one.